Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, places like Apple or Spotify or Google and others. Or you can go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information about our work. Feel free to send along a message there or on our contact form, or you can email me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, we're, as you know, if you've been following along, we're we're past the one-year point. And that, uh, wow, what a quick year that has been. There, there were some challenges here and there, some awesome guests. I sure hope I'm better at this than I was on day one. Special uh, shout-out to Josh Brown at his productions. And, uh, wow, Jen Ransom and the whole... Crew there, probably other people whose names I don't know who are involved in this process. Uh, grateful and thankful for this opportunity, plan to continue to do this as long as you'll have me. And uh, interestingly, you know, I should mix up the intro because I say the same stupid thing again and again. I should just say, hey, what's up or something. We'll work on that. Wasn't that last episode great? If you didn't listen to it, if you just missed it, it was uh, Charlotte Elton uh, was featured, a conversation I had with her. She's the superintendent of Heritage Christian School in Canton, Ohio. And wow, I mean, I, you know, I met her about five years ago and I met Bruce and Steve and Todd and others there uh, whose names I don't remember. I should re- remember the music teacher. My goodness, what an amazing tour I had back then in 2017 there. But uh, Charlotte told her story, and if you if you missed it, I, I mean, it's worth just kind of pausing this and going back and listening to that one, because I, I don't use the word miracle a lot to describe, we say things in sports like, oh, that's it's a miracle, a miracle comeback, the miracle Mets, a miracle putt, a miracle shot, and so on, and those are just good shots and interesting events, and they're amazing, but they're not miracles. Well... What Heritage Christian School in Canton, Ohio has experienced is is, a, is nothing short of miraculous. If, if you look at business, the way it works, the way foreclosure works, the way bankruptcy works, the way people support 501c3s, nonprofits, charities, and you look at the tax law and you look at, you just, you look at the whole thing in totality, including the location of the school, the, the the amazing families that it serves, and 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 they 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 can't support those families cannot support this school financial. I mean, I know they do support it, and I know they 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 do things to support the school. Don't get me wrong, amazing things to support the school, and their kids are amazingly talented. Their students are really really special, and the work that is done by the faculty and the staff and the administration and the board and people who support this school is incredible. Todd Bensel is in charge of fundraising there. I don't remember his title exactly. He's an attorney. 
He's just an interesting guy. I like him a lot. I enjoyed getting to know him. And he will tell you that that community, you know, from the community of parents, you know, the people who support most Christian schools around the country, they, they can't bridge the gap between the cost of educating the student and, and the uh, amount of tuition they're able to charge. And it's complicated. There's a state program. I call it a voucher program. I don't know what they call it, but it's, it's wonderful, a wonderful blessing and also kind of limiting. Well, Sharla last week told the story of this school kind of from start to finish. And my goodness there, she called me a couple of weeks ago and said, you're not going to believe what has happened because I left off a few months ago, last time I heard, and they were in the throes of possible foreclosure of some negotiation of having to file bankruptcy. And I, I just, I, people who work with me know that I can be kind of negative in my predictions. I think I do that to, guard my flesh because I'm a pathetic, dirty, rotten sinner who's self-righteous and self-sufficient, just like Adam. And I tend to predict negative outcomes when the outcome has been negative to that point. And I look and I, I just didn't see anything on the horizon that looked hopeful. And I, I, I try to be encouraging. And Charlotte talks about that very graciously in that episode last week. But what a testimony of God's faithfulness, of the faithfulness of his people and the way he rewards his people when they're faithful. And I didn't just advocate for the prosperity gospel. I just said, God blesses us when we're faithful. And he does. Not 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 in a karma-like way, but he blesses us. And, you know, you've, you've heard these podcasts on truth uh, long enough to know exactly what scripture teaches on that topic. And if you don't, send me a note and I'll tell you about it. Okay. Well, now we've arrived in Romans 9. What a refreshing break to have Sharla join us last week after the beauty of Romans 8. And now we get to a difficult section of scripture. And I want to, I, I know I'm rambling on here in the intro, but I, but I want to ram, ramble a minute more. And I want to just say this. These difficult doctrines, and I, I'm, I'm going to call them difficult, and some people are going to cringe when I say that. Some of my friends are going to say, well, wait a minute. What about doctrines of grace? They're beautiful. This is our proof text. Isn't that great? Well, it is, in a sense, but it's also confusing and confounding to people. This is the chapter that confuses some. And so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to look at this chapter and, and other sections of scripture that are, I'm going to call them difficult because they are difficult for humans to understand. And, and I'm going to suggest to you that if, if you look at the totality of the evidence in scripture, you can even just take the New Testament. But if you look at, you, you got to look at the Old Testament because Paul's just quoting uh, all sorts of Old Testament quotes, uh, sections here, even in chapter nine. But but if, if you just look at New Testament truth alone and, and you look at what God has clearly, the truth that God has clearly revealed to us, then, I mean, clearly, again and again, different from different vantage points, different speakers slash writers, different events, and there's a totality of evidence in Scripture about who God is, who man is, and how God relates to man. And I, I know I, I say that all the time and it can just kind of roll off my tongue 
in one ear and out the other, as they say. But this is powerful. This this truth that is that is clear to us. And then there there are some sections that can prove to be difficult. And I could I could name for you off the top of my head, and you could probably do this too. I I can name for you those concepts that are particularly difficult. And I'll tell you where we always we people I know always land on this. And I have the advantage of having a classroom classrooms with a total of about 100 students each year at Circle Christian School, incredibly bright 11th and 12th graders. And so I know how they think and I I know what their parents struggle with and how they how they see these doctrines and and I know a little bit about most of their churches and how they teach these doctrines. And so I think I can say that in evangelicalism, can I call it that? Just to use a broad brush, in most churches, most Protestant churches throughout the United States, at least, uh, we struggle with doctrines of grace, with God's sovereignty versus man's free will. And I happen to have friends uh, uh, who, who don't agree with each other on, on this topic. And, and uh, I just want to say this. At the beginning of this study, of this chapter, this, it's really more of an overview than a study. But let's do this today. Let's focus on those things that are beautiful in this section. Instead of saying, aha, you see there? God is sovereign in salvation and election is a thing and you're either elect or you're not, you're either damned or you're not and you can't do anything about it. Instead of going into into dangerous territory and just looking at this scripture to prove one side or the other of that argument or to you know to either prove it or discredit it, that then let's just look for the beauty that Paul is teaching us. And you know, I often say to students and, and I often say I often say to students on this podcast, don't I? But I do often stay, say to students, I'm, I'm becoming that old man who's been teaching for a long time. And so I repeat myself a lot. And one of the things I say is pull the camera back. Pull it back. Now that's not, I'm not saying ignore a sentence, ignore parts of scripture. Don't write me and tell me, oh, you're a heretic because you said pull the camera back. Nope. I, I, I want us to look at the underlying teaching. And, and I'm not just looking for agreement. I, I don't do that. I, I, this podcast is named Relentless Truth with John Warren for a reason. One, that's my name. Two, I, I want to relentlessly pursue truth. When Mark Stees, uh, the marketing uh, owner of the marketing company that I work with, when we, we started these foundational conversations and discussed a bunch of names for the podcast, we turned down names that were cute and, and we, we wanted the name of the podcast to focus on what we do here. And that is pursue truth relentlessly. So might sound, all that might sound, sound kind of cheesy to you. I, I got to say one more thing that definitely sounds cheesy to you. If you're, if you're a theologian and we all should be, I'm going to try really hard today and I try every day, but I'm going to try harder today, even because of the difficulty of this section and it, it, I don't think it's all that difficult, but it seems to be because we all interpret it differently. I'm going to try really hard to focus on exegesis instead of eisegesis. Exegesis, you've heard me mention this too, 
is the uh, reading out of scripture, what it says, eisegesis is reading into it. And and I, I kind of look at those as backwards because I, I think sometimes we look at scripture with a filter uh, and I'll, I'll say it this way. Sometimes we teach young people that their worldview is just some lenses and you can put them on or take them off. And sometimes we adults approach scripture, a section of scripture, all of scripture with lenses on that look at scripture through a particular theological, ideological, philosophical system. I grew up in a dispensational background. Some of you are gasping. Others of you say, what in the world is that? What are you dispensing with? Well, when I say dispensational background, I, I mean that background that teaches that theological system that is God treating man differently through different points in history. Now, there are some things that are different pre, pre-cross of Jesus Christ, pre-Christ, and post-cross of Jesus Christ, post-Christ, post his finished work. There are some big moments in time that are really significant. You know, there's creation, there's the flood, there's Israel, there's the law, there are the prophets, kings, judges, all the above. There's the finished work of Christ. There's uh, eschatology, the, the what's happening, what's going to happen next. And we're in this New Testament church period of history. So I'll give you the fact that there are these distinct periods of time. And, and, and yet, I don't believe Scripture teaches that God has dealt with man any differently. If you've been following through this series, I believe that justification by faith, being declared righteous by faith, was God's plan for man from the beginning. All right. Before I just qualify this to death, let me just start right in now on chapter 9 of Romans, Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. If you haven't been with us from the beginning, go back to the beginning of this series. And even if you fast forward through the boring sections, which one could argue are significant, I hope you'll you'll go back and uh, I won't recap today. Paul writes strategically and he kind of turns a corner here. He's talking about the beauty of who God is and, and the implications of that for us in chapter eight. He closes it. He chose, closes chapter eight with this. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, he's already talked about who us is. And don't argue with me on that. Well, you can argue if you want. But us is all of mankind. He's talking about the Jews and Gentiles together. And the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Paul has explained this rather clearly. Paul doesn't want divisions in this church. This church in Rome is is populated, we think, about 30, 35, maybe even 40% Jewish people. The rest are Gentiles. But Rome is kind of an interesting place. You know, it's the center of the civilized world. Paul does not want divisions in the church over things we shouldn't divide over. And whether 
you know, he's made the case already that Abraham is the father of us all. Now, he starts in chapter nine and he's, he's addressing, if you, if you pull the camera back, if you can do that, he's, he's addressing a concern. Paul is really good at writing strategically. You know, I often in business, I learned and, and I learned it through just practice and the school of hard knocks and some really good training along the way brought by really sharp people who cared and worked hard and did a good job. But I, I learned how to anticipate objections in selling bank products. And that's a very effective tool. You know, it's kind of the, I know what you're going to say and here's what you're going to say. And here's why you're not thinking about this correctly. Now, I didn't, I didn't use that tool to deceive people. I used it to say, I know human nature and I know what your experience has probably been, but your experience here with me in this bank is going to be better. And these are the things you care about. And there are all kinds of, you know, I took all kinds of training. I'm not going to start naming the trainer companies, but some external, some internal, and some, again, some amazing people, amazing content, and some not so amazing, but you learn over time that, you know, human needs are, are, are really not that sophisticated. Consumer choice theory isn't really that complicated. We make decisions based on just a, a few things. Maslow wasn't perfect, but he, he kind of had our basic needs right, at least, and he sort of had the, our, our motivation correct, I think. And if you study others, both from that period and more, more modern writers on these topics, you just become aware that people make purchases for various reasons. People make decisions as consumers in various relatively simple ways. I stutter because I don't want to oversimplify that because people are, on the other hand, people are complex. So all that to, to say that Paul, to see Paul clearly here, we've got to pull the lens of our camera back and we've got to try to understand the concern he's addressing because he's addressing a couple of them in Romans chapter nine. And he does it in kind of an objection scripting sort of way, much like he did, if you remember back at the beginning of chapter three, Paul uses rhetorical questions and, and devices to, as a device to prompt us to think or to let us know, here's what I'm addressing. And he does it with these questions that are sometimes rather profound. Well, this time he, he combines a couple of things. If you remember in previous chapter, a few chapters ago, we talked about how human Paul was and how he let us see his humanity. And, and that this time he, he sort of combines this objection scripting, this rhetorical device with his humanity. And he says this in Romans 9, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Now, that's usually not a smart way to start a paragraph, is it? You know, I, I am not lying should not be necessary. Paul is doing this for emphasis. Paul's not implying that everything else he said was a lie. You know, sometimes we say to each other, let me be honest with you. And I kind of cringe at that because I'm thinking, well, what have you been all along? I hope you've been honest. Usually we mean, let me be candid, a little more candid than you might be comfortable with when we say that. 
But he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit and saying, my conscience is clear on this matter. And then verse two, he explains it, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So now the reader is thinking, wow, Paul, you just talked about the beauty of who God is and its implications for us. And chapter eight, you talked about our glorification, our future glory. My goodness, why is your heart so heavy? And then verse three, he goes on, for I could wish, could wish, he didn't say I do wish. He's he's sort of throwing up a hypothetical, again, using very clever rhetoric. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's just saying, my heart is heavy for the Jewish people. They are Israelites, he says, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, there's there's a whole debate about whether Paul's talking about the nation of Israel or is he talking about all of us. Well, in this section, this introductory paragraph, he's talking about Israel. He's, He's talking about his kinsmen. These are Jewish people that he's talking about. And he's talking about the significance of Israel, the nation, I believe. Or at least the Jewish people, if he's not talking about the nation. But watch what he does. He goes on in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, so now here we go. Uh, gets a little complicated here, but he's using Israel to both reference Jewish people and now descendants of Jacob. And he says, he's talking about the spiritual children of Abraham. And he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all Jewish people are saved. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. Listen to this. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So he's talking about Jesus Christ, the promised one. In verse 10, he says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Uh-oh, here we go. Not because of works, but because of him who calls So not because of anything you've done, but because of God who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, 
but Esau I hated. Now, did God hate the Edomites, the descendants of Esau? Did God actually hate Esau? If you study scripture, particularly, oh, let's just say Genesis, oh, I don't know, I'll get this wrong, probably off the top of my head, 27 through 33, or 4, somewhere in there. You see that Esau was blessed, the Edomites were blessed in various ways. God chose Jacob clearly to be the father of his people, of Israel. And we're all, all of those who are justified by faith are in him, in Christ. And so Paul's trying to establish that. But he's saying this, this, this is a, a Jewish expression. The expression is used several times in scripture. Blank I loved, but blank I hated, or something like that. I loved this one and then hated the other. To show I preferred one over another. I mean, God could have technically, I guess, if he had wanted to, favored Ishmael or, or, or picked other people. In a sense, he preferred various people along the way to lead, to, to father a nation. And I'm sure there were a lot of people who were fighting shoulder to shoulder with David back in the day who aren't really mentioned in scripture and in a sense David is was preferred i mean i i don't you know and you can argue all, all kinds of i i get all the arguments like david's brothers didn't have faith and and, and I, I i don't I, I really don't think that's necessarily the point i i think god can prefer who he wants to prefer i mean we in the church struggle with this paul's going to get to this in romans 12 if you if you if you really are good at pulling back the camera and, and, and you don't have to be that good at it because I can do it. But, but you look at Romans 12 and in totality with all the rest of scripture where he's talking about our gifting and, and he's saying, you know, we don't divide over our gifts. And, and I, I, I think it's just important to get the fact that he's saying, you know, I, God prefers who he prefers. He gifts us differently. There really shouldn't be a pecking order and I, I guess that has something to do with chickens, but I'm not sure I fully understand that expression I just used, but I use it all the time. And but but there there that we as as humans we you know I can't stand the fact, and I said this a few weeks ago in, in another section of Romans that when we meet people we say, "What do you do?" Oh, what do you do? Nice to meet you, Fred. What do you do? And no matter what anybody tells me, what I believe is actually going on, I don't believe that's a some kind of device to remember the person's name. I maybe maybe it helps, but I I think we we put people in order. We we want to line them up. We think of some professions. I have my students do this, and they're really good at this. By the way, you know, like I told the story a few weeks ago of me having to sit next to Bruce Melnick at an EDC Economic Development Commission Board uh, meeting over in Brevard County, and they they introduced us so that Bruce was introduced right before me because I was sitting right next to him, and he's. He's an astronaut, and I, I felt, oh, my goodness, I, you know, he'd been on X number of space shuttle missions and done all kinds of things, and I think he was in the Air Force, and, you know, then there's me, the banker, um, next. 
but anyway, we, we do rank people and, and, and I think Paul's teaching something that is not just, doesn't just say don't rank people. He's saying God, God designed the world a certain way. And, and yes, he blessed some people differently than others. Is it possible for, for the, the, the person who, who does manual labor or, 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 or does, you know, something that society views as kind of ordinary to, to be blessed and live a rich life? Of course. You know, we're, we're not suggesting that all the people God didn't bless, you know, all of the Esau's in the world live miserable lives and are damned. I, I, I don't believe that's what scripture teaches. And I, I, I know I can talk myself onto a lonely island on, on this theologically, and we'll talk about that as we go through this, the rest of this chapter. But anyway, let's go back to verse 14. So we've got Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And, and what some will say uh, is, and my friend, late friend R.C. Sproul would, would probably say, I think I've probably heard him say it many times, is that this is all about election, predestination. And I'm just, you know, I, I guess it's related, yes, I, 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 but it, it is saying God is sovereign. God's sovereign over everything. And I, I think you have to admit that. You have to believe that. I, I think a proper view of man and our limitations helps us see God clearly. God is sovereign. He is apart from us. He is transcendent and eminent, with us he's he's big and apart from us so that that we his ways are not our ways we cannot even though we're made in his image we can't fully understand him and we shouldn't certainly shouldn't critique him so but we know some other things are true and here's where i just want to caution Uh, let's just read this next paragraph see if this helps us what shall we say then is there injustice on god's part paul says by no means so Paul agrees God is just. Now, we can't superimpose our narrow view of God on God. We often talk about God as if he's a pagan deity who can be manipulated by our right thinking and right doing. And he's not. He's bigger than than we like to imagine, than we can imagine. So, Paul says by no means, and Paul does this several times. It's the, it's a very similar expression that he uses repeatedly. It just says, "Oh, that's just absolutely not." And and then he goes on in verse fifteen, for he says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and whom I have compassion." So then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, I, I, I disagree with some of my reformed friends and some reformed theologians. I, I, I believe this hardening happens, and I don't know how this works. I, I have to be honest. I, I cannot connect all the dots here. 
But I believe this hardening happens. I believe Romans 1 describes it. The, remember the immoral people in Romans 1 and how their hearts become hard, their senses become dull. They lose their conscience, lose the ability to see that wrong is wrong and right is right. And Paul says at the end of that chapter, they not only do this, but they, they take pleasure and they know that those who do these things deserve death, but they take pleasure in having others do it with them. I mean, I don't think he says with them, but that's the implication. So, so yes, God is sovereign and he hardens sinners who reject him. And, and I just, I, I think if we don't do eisegesis, reading into the text, I think that's what it says. And Paul's addressing a, a bigger question that I'm going to get to in a minute. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So if God, if God automatically has mercy on who, whoever he wills and hardens whoever he hardens, then, then how could he be just? Who can resist his will? It's an excellent question, isn't it? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Here's another Old Testament quote. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, I want to be careful here, but think about what he just said. To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use. Is he is he still talking about Jacob and Esau? Well, I, I think sort of, yes. He's talking about from a larger group. He's talking about dealing, dealing with, he's addressing larger groups of people and he's calling us the, the lump in, in mass. And then he's talking about a vessel, a single person, a singular person for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, verse 22, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, you see, God desires his own glory and that doesn't make him evil or unjust or unrighteous or selfish because he's perfect. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. See, see Romans 8. This, that's me talking. It's not in the text. See Romans 8 for an explanation of God's glory and our future glory. Verse 24 of chapter 9 says, Even as whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here. In the verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, 
Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. He's talking about Jewish people and Gentiles. And I believe if you pull the camera back far enough, you see in this section that he's talking about, one, Jewish people thinking because they're Jewish that they're righteous. And that, that that's still a problem for some today. And you know, who believe the Messiah hasn't come. And two, the Jewish people see themselves as superior to the Gentiles with respect to the gospel. The gospel has gone to the Gentiles. So look at the end here. He's going to talk about Israel and their unbelief. The end of chapter 9. In verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? And listen to the answer. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, this very simply and directly is talking about justification by faith and the struggle that Jewish people have, frankly, all people have, with this, with this doctrine. Paul says, why? Why did they not succeed in reaching that law? Why did they not succeed to achieving righteousness? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Isn't he just going back to the beginning and talking about our self-sufficiency yet again, our self-reliance, the sin that Adam committed that we all commit all the time, thinking I've got to be good enough, I've got to be sufficient? That's what he's doing. And I, I know, you know, I know some of you are listening and saying, John, why are you not talking about these beautiful doctrines? And why are you not explaining these controversial phrases. Well, because I'm focusing on what I believe is the meat of the word. And, and I believe what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is something we stumble over. His finished work is beautiful. This doctrine of justification is in, uh, by faith is incredible. And that's what you should all focus on, not on, Paul is saying this, that's what you should all focus on, not on whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, not on whether you have kept the law successfully or been born in the right family or came from Jacob or Esau. And, and he talks about the stumbling, this rock of offense that is Jesus Christ. I often tell my students that it's one thing to say, I believe in God. You know, you'll hear, you know, Stars on television will say the the man upstairs, or just people in normal life do this too. But but I believe in a higher power. 
I believe in the man upstairs, the good Lord, you'll hear him reference. If you do that, that's, that's fine. But, but it's, it's another thing to talk about God himself, the true God, the true living God of scripture, the only God, and yet another still to talk about Jesus Christ, God in flesh and his finished work. A lot of religions around the world, and, and I, I'll, I'll be happy if I thought it would be productive, I'd name a bunch of them, but a lot of false religions, like Mormonism comes to mind, Islam comes to mind, Jehovah's Witnesses come to mind. And I want to say no offense, but I do atten- intend offense if, if that might prompt you to inquire about who Jesus Christ really is. But a lot of religious systems are fine with us talking about God or the big man upstairs or a higher power or a creator, even a divine. But if you really want to watch them react, mention the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is the stumbling stone. He is a rock of offense. People are happy to concede They're not all happy to concede even this, but they're generally happy to concede that there's a creator. Even the biology department, microbiology departments in universities now are saying, hey, you know, all those theories we said were probably true with respect to evolution. We we can't prove them. In fact, we got to have as much faith as we accuse Christians of having. And so those all those talks and debates about fairy tales and pixie dust, we probably don't want to do that anymore because because there, there, there's probably an intelligent designer because, because we, don't, we don't have a better theory. And that's not true of all of them, but that, that's generally, believe it or not, where they're going, right? where, where that industry is trending. And yet, when we talk about who God really is, about redemptive history, we have to talk about Jesus Christ and, and our, the faith that we have in, in him, and his finished work, his conquering sin and death on a cruel Roman cross, his resurrection and, and his being seen by many and then his ascension and his sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. So, okay, that's Romans 9. I told you I'm on a lonely island sometimes theologically. I, I hope I focused on the really important critical truth. And I'll, I'm going to tell you, let's just review. I'm going to tell you what that is again. It is justification by faith. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, whether you get it or not, you are, you are only, we are only, man is only. God's plan from the beginning was justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And that's the overarching point that Paul is making here. You don't have to fear. I always worry with the way some people teach this section that people will fear, you know, am I, am I a vessel of wrath? No, you're not. If you have faith in Christ, no, you are not. I, I, I don't want you to get bogged down us to get bogged down in the five points of Calvinism. I think sometimes we're more Calvinistic than Calvin. If you read his work, you might agree with me on that. More, more Luther-esque than Luther. But anyway, these are beautiful truths. 
I hope this has been a blessing. Our justification is by faith, not based on works. The sin of self-reliance, I've said it again and again, even on this podcast, but it is damning. The folks and the moralists in, in Romans 2 concern me deeply because it's easy for us to say, I don't do those things. I live my life by a checklist and I'm actually pretty good as if we're, as if we're worshiping a pagan God who is manipulated by a prayer we prayed, some decisions we make, and I'm not criticizing prayer and I'm not saying man, man's decisions aren't important. They are. But the source of our righteousness, our righteousness is found in Jesus Christ alone, not in us. I didn't just say works don't matter. They do. We're going to talk about that coming up in a couple of chapters. All right. Well, that's our lesson for today in Romans 9. I hope this has been helpful. In case somebody joined us in the middle of this podcast episode, I want to ask you to go back and listen to the last one, the one we released last week, the conversation with Sharla Elton on Heritage Christian School. I don't usually ask you to do that, but please do if you missed it. And please support that amazing work. Contact me if you uh, would like help uh, reaching them. So that's our our episode for today. Thank you for your support. Uh, Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to johnwarrenmedia.com. Feel free to send along an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.